Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. Elm City Church is a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together. No matter where you're at, these messages are meant to equip and strengthen you for the journey. You can find out more by visiting elmcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening. About a month ago, I was on a walk around the block uh, by church. And as I was walking from far away, I saw a piece of paper on the ground. And I kind of was going, as I, as I, and I looked down at it, just kind of curious as to what it was. I found out that someone must have been moving or just moving their office in the area, but they had dropped and left a 25-year-old letter that was all about a family dispute on the ground. And I felt a little bit guilty because I looked down and started, started to read it, and I was like, I shouldn't read this but it's so interesting. I'm going to keep on reading it. And uh, I read it, and it, it kind of went something like this. I changed the names to both protect the identity of family and also because I forgot them. Uh, but here is what the letter went, something like this. It says, like, Dear Tim, I am writing to inform you that the family has decided that you and your family are not welcome at the family Thanksgiving or Christmas gatherings this year. I was like, oh boy, what's going on here? Uh, there are a number of reasons why we've decided this, but primarily it's because Mary continues to cause conflict and trouble, and the incident this past year at Jekyll Island was the final straw. We all know what happened the year before, and we are hoping that we would move past this, but clearly we have not. Uh, We've tried to be patient, but Mark and Sarah, they've both said that they're not going to come if you and Mary are there. So in the best interest of the family, we've decided that you guys are not welcome to come this year. Sincerely, Robert and Elaine. Now, talk about a juicy letter. Uh, When I I read it, it made me so curious because I was only hearing one side of the conversation. And there were so many things I wanted to know about, like, what did happen at Jekyll Island that year? And, um, you know, know, what's what's Mark and Sarah's deal? Are they uptight? Or who's, who's right? I had all of these questions because I was only reading one side of a conversation. But I could definitely still clearly get the general idea of what was going on. And uh, as as silly as it might sound, that's what it's like a bit to preach and read from some of the pastoral letters in the Bible. Like we have been going through the letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and in a sense, we're reading somebody's mail, and in another sense, we're only hearing one side of the conversation. And there's so many things that I was like, oh, I wish I knew this, I wish I knew this, I wish I knew this. Uh, These letters that we study, they're not written to us, but they are written for us. So even though we might have so many things we'd like to fill in, God has given us these letters for our good and for our benefit. Uh, And this letter to the Colossians that we've been going through, like the letter I found on the ground, was written for a specific reason. And one of the main reasons why it was written was because Paul had heard that this church was vulnerable to following philosophies, to following for philosophies and traditions that at their core were saying, Jesus is not enough. We don't 100% know the specifics of what they were, but we do know that whatever they were, they were trying to tell this church that Jesus was not enough. And so this letter was written to encourage them, to warn them, and to specifically remind them, hey, church, remember that Jesus is a better way. And so while we are, I think, I think we have a lot of similarities. Our situation, our specific situation is going to be different but there's so much, so many solutions to the problems of the world right now that either don't involve Jesus or say that Jesus is not enough. So this morning, I just want to take a few minutes and show you why any solution to the problems of the world that we see around us, 
that does not have Jesus as a part of it is ultimately hollow without Jesus at the center of it. So let's read somebody's mail. And I'm going to start in the middle of Paul's letter to Colossians, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. It's a bit longer, so I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Uh, reads, I think it reads smoother for long chunks than the ESV, which I normally speak out of. So this is Colossians 2, 8 through 15. And Paul goes, Paul says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So... Even in just reading that, there's probably a few things that jumped out at you that were clearly culturally specific to what Paul was writing about. But the thing that we should look at that translates so well to our situation now is when he says, watch out for hollow and deceptive philosophies. So this phrase can be translated, you know, see to it that, watch out, be on the lookout for, do not be shocked by the fact that there are going to be things that sound really good that are going to be a threat to the church or really any church because there are going to be solutions offered that don't have Jesus at the center. Um, and here's why it's so important for us to think this through. It's you know, not that we have this desire to shoot down every idea that doesn't come from the church or to be, in a sense, narrow-minded and locked in to, to one way of thinking just for no reason. It's that a lot of things promise freedom a lot of things promise freedom, but still lead to more captivity. And so that's why Paul is saying, watch out, be on the lookout for. Because if false teaching or false or competing worldviews didn't resemble the real thing or didn't have bits of truth in it or didn't sound good, no one would be fooled by it. Like no one, if you're going to make a counterfeit of something, you make sure it looks really close to the real thing. Uh, you know, bad counterfeits don't fool anybody. So this is why over and over in this letter, and in his ministry, the Apostle Paul points people to the real, authentic Jesus and continues to point people back to the core truth of the gospel. Because again, the best way to spot a fake is to know the real thing inside and out. So I want to help you do that a little bit this morning. Something that's been helpful to me is just thinking through sort of the, it's called the narrative arc of scripture or the four questions that help answer a biblical worldview. So all of you watching, me, every, everybody, has a worldview. And think of a worldview as just a way for you to view the world. It's like uh, everyone has a set of glasses they put on, and that is how they interpret everything they see around them. And you might not know what yours is, but you have one. So here are the four questions that all worldviews or ideologies try to answer. And the first is the question of kind of identity or origins. Who am I? Where did I come from? 
then the next question is, what's our fundamental problem? So what's, what's really wrong with the world out there? The next question is, how do we fix it? What's the solution to the mess? And then the fourth question is, it's kind of a combination of how should we live and where's all this heading? You'll be surprised how helpful these four questions are in really discerning truth and discerning where an idea is coming from. So let me just quickly give you the Bible's answers to those four questions because they are very unique. The first question of who are we? Well, first and foremost, we are created beings created in the image of God. That is where a fundamental identity comes from. There were people who were created in the image of God. Second question is, though, what's wrong with the world? Why is it such a mess? I, don't think, I can't think of any worldview system right now, or maybe there's one that I'm missing that says, like, nothing. It's great. Everything's perfect. It's the way it should be. We all recognize something's wrong. And so Christianity's answer to this is that it's something called sin. And sin is both individual, acts that we commit against God, but it's also corporate, the idea that sin can both be individual and systemic and not just involve individuals but whole systems. So the Bible says behind all of that is something called sin, which is willful disobedience to God, missing the mark, um, intentionally or unintentionally uh, going against the way of Jesus. And every worldview or ideology has their version of this. They, might, they don't call it sin, but there's something that falls into that. And so what's the solution? How do we fix this? mess. The Christian answer is we need to be rescued through the atoning work of Jesus. Because if sin is the biggest problem, then we need salvation. If, 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 and this is in this third piece where you see the biggest difference in between competing ideas. What is the solution for the world's problems? What is the solution for sin? In Christianity, Jesus is that answer, both for individuals to come to saving faith But also, he talked all over and over about this whole idea of the kingdom of God, which is societies and groups of people that are living within the values of the rule and reign of God. So sin is the biggest biggest issue. And then the final question, how should we live? Where's everything going? Well, we're called to love God with all our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves, and then share this good news with everybody else and make disciples. The scriptures that tells a story that moves from the fall, from creation to the fall, to reconciliation, to restoration. And here's why this is so helpful. You, you, you don't have to be a Christian or religious to notice or care or even make a, make a difference in this world. That just should be obvious. It's by something we call common grace. But here is where a follower of Jesus needs to be really discerning. Because you can notice and care deeply about the same problems as everybody else, but wildly disagree on the solution, on how you make a difference and how do you solve this problem. So Paul, he's warning this church, and I think that warning is going to us. There's going to be many good-sounding philosophies that attempt to answer these questions, but in the end are going to be found hollow because they've been divorced of Jesus. That doesn't mean that there's not uh, truth in them, that they don't highlight real things, that those who follow them are not uh, well-intentioned, it's that they have been emptied of the power needed to change because salvation and restoration is only found in Jesus. So let me just give you one example of what I'm, of what I'm talking about. We'll run on different kind of philosophy or thought through this kind of grid of the four questions. And it's a worldview called uh, critical theory. It's an idea, an ideology, and you maybe have never heard of this term, 
but I would guarantee you, you are being influenced by it. It is, it's the philosophy that's pretty much driving the dialogue on all of the big issues in, in the world right now. And so let's just run it through these four issues so I can show you, um, yes, there's some good that it highlights, but ultimately how it falls short because it doesn't offer the, sol the solutions that the scriptures offer. So the first question is, in critical theory of who are we? Broadly speaking, you know, where does our identity come from? So our identity is found in either being a member of a, of a dominant group or a marginalized group with respect to whatever your core kind of given identity is. And so that second question, all right, what's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is oppression. Moving on then, what's, so, okay, so what's the solution? Uh, the solution is, through critical theory, if you're in a dominant group, you need to divest yourself of power and liberate others. Or if you're in a marginalized group, you need to acquire power by dismantling all structures and institutions that subjugate and oppress. And that's why you're hearing things, this, things like, you know, burn it down, tear it down. Um, that's coming out of this. And finally, what is the ultimate goal? Liberation. Now, is everything about that view wrong? Absolutely not. It's an attempt to answer the question of how do we fix this mess. But here's where it falls short. Because if you follow it to its logical conclusion, you're going to see that there's no ultimate salvation or redemption. And why it can be useful in highlighting real issues of inequality and power dynamics, while it can be helpful in opening your eyes to seeing injustice in a way you might not be aware of, it's going to, be, it's going to ultimately fall short. And what it leads to is just a never-ending cancel culture. We're seeing it. it. It doesn't lead to restoration or redemption. It just leads to a never-ending cancel culture. But the way of Jesus, it's a third way. It's, 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 it's not over here. It's not over here. It's a different path. And here's why it's better. Because it can change the heart of the individual. It cares deeply about issues of, real, of the real injustices we see in the world. But it offers an answer for both the oppressor and the oppressed. Dr. Derwin Gray, he, he put it this way. He, this is a great quote. He said, Pursuing justice without the mercy of Jesus turns the seeker of justice into angry mobs of condemnation. The oppressed becomes the oppressor, and the cycle of dehumanization continues. But mercy is for the oppressed and the oppressor, which is why Jesus said, love your enemies. All right, for our, our second point today, as you can see, we've, uh, we've changed distances a little bit here. This was a much harder to set up than, than, than we expected. But the second point, I was really trying to figure out how can I illustrate what Paul's getting at? Because he's clearly contrasting the hollowness of the empty philosophies of the world with the fullness of Jesus. And so here, here's, what I came, here's what I came up with. So this, uh, this can right here of Spindrift, um, delicious grapefruit, is currently full. And because it's full, I can stand on it. And this, this is going to hold my weight, at least for a little bit of time, because it's full. Now, if I do this, crack this bad boy open, pour it out. It's pretty refreshing, doesn't it? And no, I'm not sponsored yet. Now, if I take the same can and I put it down and I try to stand on it, we all know what's going to happen. It crushes. It's pretty sad. So the reason why Paul is so concerned for this church 
for giving in to any type of philosophy or ideology that doesn't have Jesus is because it's empty. And it's not going to be able to hold the weight of the expectations of salvation, and there's no power in it. So therefore, he says, watch out for any of these philosophies or views that are empty of Christ because they're hollow and they're not going to hold up. So the third thing I want us to see from this passage is that how Paul highlights how only the gospel can save. Because here is why the gospel is good news and why Jesus is the only answer. And here is what Jesus has done that no one else has. Why we can say that there's true life and salvation found in Jesus. Let me read for you verses 13 through 15 again. Paul says, when, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. So he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So this is kind of the thing that Paul is getting at in, in, uh, in illustration. So picture a piece of paper with a, li- with a, with a, with a line down the middle, uh, a ledger. On one side is debt, and the other side is credit. So what, what Paul is saying is um, that all of our sin is going on the debt side. We're just racking up debt after debt after debt. But I think the average person views you know, how you get to heaven, how you get right with God, kind of like this. On this side, here's all the bad things I've done. And here on this side is all the good things I've done. And it's almost like each has a score. And we're hoping at the end that the, you know, the credits are going to outweigh the debts. And as long as I have a positive-ish balance, I'll be fine. If you've ever seen the show um, The Good Place, that's pretty much what the whole premise of that show is, is based off of. Uh, but that's not the story that the Bible tells. Well, says, here's your real situation. Sin, what's wrong with the world, everything you've done is going on that debt side. And we're just continuing to rack up a greater and greater bill, in a sense. That every, every sin, every lie, every half-truth, every time you've been selfish, all of that wasn't just against somebody else, but was also against God. And our good works, any good thing we try to do, one, they're never 100% pure. But two, they don't go on this credit side. They, there's nothing that we do that actually helps eliminate the debt that we're, acqu- we're acquiring. And so here is what makes the gospel such good news and, and, so, and so amazing and where the good news of Jesus comes in and why we celebrate and why we need to know this story and tell everybody the story because this is what Paul says happened. Going on about Jesus, he says, but Jesus forgave us all of our sins by having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So, so how, how did he do that? Now imagine I owe you 50 bucks. I was in a time of need. You helped me out. You said, Albie, here's 50 bucks. And a couple months later, um, you go to me, you go, hey, you know what? Don't worry about paying that back. I'll, I'll, you know, where I'm, I'm going to forgive that 50 bucks you owe me. Now in that scenario, it cost you $50 to forgive me. Because forgiveness is always costly. And forgiveness always costs the person who forgives. And it's, it's the same with Jesus. Because Paul goes on, he says he's, that Jesus has taken our list of wrongs away and nailed it to the cross. And what he's getting at in an image that all the first century readers would have understood was, was this. In Roman times, when you were crucified, the charges against you 
were nailed above your head to the cross. So everybody who was walking by saw why you were being crucified, why you were being punished. And so Paul is saying, here's what happened for those who have put their faith in Jesus on the cross. That whole list of everything you've done wrong that you can't repay, that leaves you guilty before God, when you cry out to Jesus in repentance, say, Lord, save me, that, that list of your wrongs, that gets nailed above Jesus. So on the cross, it says that Jesus took all the, all the sin of the world, was nailed above him, and he was punished for that, and he died in our place. So when Jesus, when Jesus offers us forgiveness and why Jesus can fix the problems of the world, it's because he paid a very costly price. It was nailed above him. Jesus has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. And he has done something that no one else has done or can do. Jesus has made a way, and we're called to just repent and believe the good news. Because here's the flip side of that. Either Jesus pays for your debt, or you pay for your debt. And the story of the Bible is, is anyone that is unwilling to repent, anybody that refuses to cry out to God in salvation, your debt before God remains above you. And the punishment for that, the Bible says, is eternal separation from God or hell. But on the cross, Jesus took on hell for you so that you do not have to spend eternity separated from, from him. What are you trusting? My question is, what are you trusting in to know that you're okay? If it's anything less than what Jesus has done for you, it's not enough. But the ultimate problem to the solution of the world has been provided through Jesus. This is why we need to tell the story over and over again because we're just so prone to forget it. We need to know it and live it so that when we find issues that we are passionate about, that the world is passionate about, that we all want fixed, we can say something like, hey, you know what? I care about that too. God cares about that deeply. We both want this to be fixed. Can I share with you why I believe the way of Jesus offers the best solution? Because as followers of Jesus, we should care deeply. We take the Bible seriously. We should care deeply about the plight of the poor, racial injustice, the rights of the unborn, the welfare of our community of a whole. Like These are things that we should be passionate about. But we also need to uh, know and understand the views behind everything else. This was, I came across this this week, and it was a, a quote that I thought really was helpful of why do we even take the time not just know what the scripture says, but to know the other competing worldviews out there. Uh, it said this, As Christians committed to reaching our neighbors with the gospel, it's vital that we not only understand the concepts that shape our culture, but we also see their relationship to the biblical worldview. So let's commit to understanding things like critical theory so that we can recognize it when we see it, critique it, and show people that true freedom and joy are ultimately found in Christ alone. This is why we celebrate communion, too. Because every time we do, we declare that Jesus' body broken and his blood shed conquered sin and death for us and offer us new life in him. This is the good news. And if you're out there watching, I don't, I, I don't know where, where you're at, but I want you to know that there, the best solution to the world's problems is found in Jesus. Because he is the only one that has paid for our sins, and one day he is reconciling all things to himself in this world that we all want, this, 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 this kingdom of, you know, of love, joy, and peace, where there's no war, where there's no strife, all of this. 
Jesus says, is going to be available through me. So come and lay your sins down at my feet. Repent and believe the good news. And uh, maybe before we go to take communion, if you, have, if you have elements at home and you're looking for them, you can kind of get them out. But before we go, I just, I really believe that there's, there's some of you out there that are watching that this is new. But you're hearing it and you say, I want to respond to this good news. Wow. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Uh, it's nothing magical. But so the scripture says simply, like, if you, you know, if you confess your sins and you cry out to Jesus, like, you will be saved. So let me, let me lead you in a, in a prayer uh, of, of salvation that you can cry out and accept this solution. So, you know, just say, you can pray something simple like this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I've come to believe that my sin has separated me from you. And I also know that sin must be punished. I now believe that you took my punishment when you died in my place and you rose again. So right now, I trust you alone as my Savior. Thank you for accepting me and for the forgiveness and eternal life that I now have. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you cried out to Jesus in faith, the Bible says an amazing thing happened. All of the wrong that was hanging over your head has been transferred to Jesus. You know what you now get? Something called the righteousness of Christ. It's like you traded places. And the perfect life he lived and everything he did, you now get credit for. Now your identity is secure. It's, it's, not, it's, it's something that's received, not earned. And it's such good news. And so as we go into communion and we, and we remember over and over on a regular basis that Jesus' body was broken for us. He was broken so that we could be healed. We, we take it. And we remember that his blood was shed for us on the cross. And that in Jesus, there is true salvation. So as followers of Jesus, we take this in remembrance and in celebration and independence. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the ultimate answer. Help us to be good news people who share your good news with the world. In your name I pray, amen.